Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you enjoy Jerusalem Unplugged, you may also like to listen to Stories from Palestine podcast. My name is Crystal. I am originally from the Netherlands. I am married to a Palestinian and I live in Beit Safafa between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. I studied history and tour guiding and I produce a weekly podcast called Stories from Palestine. You can find it on your favorite podcast player or go to the website storiesfrompalestine.info. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City, a journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history and its people. I'm Roberto Manza, and today I will delve for the third episode dedicated to Jerusalem in World War I into the history of America's relations with Palestine. I will look at the forgotten but also neglected figure of the American consul in Jerusalem during World War I, Otis Glazebrook. Now, in order to see how America related to uh, Palestine and Jerusalem in particular, I want to expand a little bit uh, the episode into looking at the early America-Palestine relations and also try to explain how and why eventually America came to support uh, almost without any form of criticism Israel. That relationship was not certainly forged out of blue, in 1948. In fact, by then, relationships were rather strained, but it developed not in a vacuum. The relationship between America and the Zionist organization started a long time before, and despite ups and downs, it certainly developed into what now we know as a strong alliance between the United States of America and Israel. I don't want to suggest any teleological reading of that history. In other words, I'm not trying to read, in, to read that history backwards, 
but I just want to show how that relationship developed and also try to explain why that alliance that was formed throughout uh, the past few decades eventually came to be and what were the reasons to form that strong alliance between the two. Let's start now discussing briefly the question of uh, America and particularly the question of America, American humanitarianism, which is a very important uh, activity and it's an important and integral part of our discussion today. So, American humanitarian activity in Jerusalem and Palestine from the early 19th century in a sense, challenges the traditional view that the United States played a minor role, nothing really, until the end of World War II. The picture is rather different and more complex. Prior to World War I, the link between the United States and Palestine was one that mainly depended upon individuals rather than institutions. And this is an important distinction, because Otis Glazebrook the American consul in Jerusalem throughout the war period, essentially bridged that divide. He represented himself, so to speak, while also bridging to represent America. In other words, he provided help, often in his own name, as a Christian, and opened the door for American institutionalized help. So we'll see that process and how it worked. And as usual, if you have questions, feel free to get in touch. Shoot me a message throughout Facebook, Twitter, or by email. I'll be very happy to give you more references uh, in relation to this specific historical period of time and the question of how America changed its relationship uh, towards humanitarianism in the first place and how this change obviously the, the political and social relationship between America and Palestine. Let's go back. Americans viewed Palestine and Jerusalem mostly through biblical lenses. And American Christian settlers grew in numbers, mainly coming to Jerusalem in response to messianic expectations. Remember, we had a few episodes dedicated to the American colony in Jerusalem. And the origins of that colony are rooted in, in this idea that the end of the world was coming, the second coming of Jesus was going to happen soon, and so they moved to be closer to the location where this would eventually happen. But we also have to look at the question of American missionaries throughout the Middle East. Now, American missionaries in Jerusalem never really gained the prominence they did in Lebanon, for instance, or in Syria, or parts of Turkey, so throughout the Ottoman Empire. This shaped the official American government role in Palestine. In fact, American consuls, certainly up until World War I, though they served individuals and even communities that moved to Jerusalem for religious reasons, were not really much concerned with missionaries per se. Missionaries were independent agents. Sometimes they sought uh, official help, but they had their own channels. Now, the American consulate in Jerusalem was less active than other states' diplomatic institutions in Palestine. There were not many Americans. If there were missionaries, they were mostly independent 
and they would not certainly seek uh, diplomatic help. So in a sense, you can say that the diplomatic position of the American consuls in Jerusalem was rather unimportant. In fact, early U.S. consuls were for the most part entrepreneurs or scholars who saw their appointment as a way to advance their personal business, and nothing more than that. Uh, Otis Glazebrook, we'll see, essentially does represent this kind of uh, uh, consular uh, and diplomatic uh, sort of individual. Consular activity, however, still shaped relations in Palestine. American consuls were responsible for maintaining the records of American citizens and protecting nationals residing within the consular jurisdiction of Jerusalem, which included American protégé. Again, Ottoman uh, citizens who acquired the status of protégé or protected by American institutions because they provided services to the American consul or consulates or to American companies for which received in exchange this form of protection. The consul obviously also registered birth, marriages, deaths of American citizens, and he issued passport. And this is going to be very important throughout the war period. They also provided a large range of services and supplying American companies with business reports. Of course, consul obviously performed legal functions and uh, handle claims filed in the United States against American citizens residing in Jerusalem. And that happened more often than we think. As I said earlier, most of the American consuls were essentially there for other reasons. And many were ordained protest Protestant clergymen, missionaries themselves, or even Christian settlers. So what is important here is to understand that at first... American relationship with Palestine was for the most part shaped by religion. White Protestantism. And I think this is important, both in ethnic terms and in religious terms, to underline. There's also a developing relationship that is between Jewish communities in Palestine and American officials. Now, these relationships were strained during the Ottoman period mostly because the United States was associated with missionary activity, which also included, as part of its objectives, the conversion of Jews to Christianity. So while many Jews that were settled in Palestine, whether from Europe or Arab Jews that lived in the area, had connections with American Jews, still they somehow criticized, and we may even use the word despised, uh, American officials, because they saw this connection with uh, American Protestantism and the idea of converting Jews to Christianity. However, in Palestine, this was a general failure, meaning that we have only a handful of Jews that convert into Christianity as a result of missionary work. This, uh, in a sense, eased relationship between American consuls and Jewish communities, but Again, it doesn't explain how this relationship started. Now, several Jewish communities in Palestine began to claim American protection, particularly those settled in Jerusalem, Safat, Tiberias, and essentially they began to claim capitulary rights 
that should have been protected by American consuls. Now, the American consuls, w once they realized that they had uh, some ground to develop their network in Palestine, they began to also offer citizenship or protection to non-American Jews. Sometimes these Jews had connections in America, but not necessarily. American Jews eventually attempted to establish a community, or in Hebrew, kolel, for Jews from the American diaspora, already in 1879. However, it was not until actually 1896 that uh, the Kolel America uh, Tiferet Yerushalayim, so the American congregation pride of Jerusalem, was officially established. And this eventually led to the reorganization of the Hanukkah funds, so charity that was received from the United States. And here we can see the seeds sold for a stronger and deeper relationship between American officials and Jews that eventually became Zionists. And already, we have to think that amongst some of this American diaspora, there were, there were those that supported Zionism, but there were also those who did not support Zionism in terms of a political goal of establishing a Jewish entity in Palestine. Now, obviously, the humanitarian crisis created by World War I change again uh, the state of affairs. Uh, what we see is that World War I paved the way for a form of support uh, uh, for Zionism and the notion that only Jews, especially American Jews, who thought of themselves as agents of innovation, could actually lead Palestine in mod into modernity. And again, now we see the second step that brings us to the sort of a close relationship between America and Zionism. Now, after the war, American involvement in Radio became more institutionalized and more organized, ultimately taking the form of a strong American form of paternalism. In a sense, the idea was that, well, the Americans were not really responsible for any colonial occupations, but they were there to provide the tools to develop modernity. Because, obviously, the locals didn't know any better. The American consul in Jerusalem during the war, Otis Glazebrook, played, and I would say unwittingly, perhaps, but I would say also effectively, a central role in this fundamental shift. Glazebrook was a retired pastor and became American consul in 1914. He had hoped to spend his remaining years quietly in the Holy Land, but the outbreak of, of the war unexpectedly pushed him into a crucial, active role in managing the crisis that beset the region. And I would say that certainly the war acted as a catalyzer for that process. That support uh, to the Zionist organization, to uh, an American Jewish diaspora uh, you know, moving into Palestine was already there before. The war only accelerated that process. Now, Glisbrook, as an American consul, and an American Christian gives us a sense of how this bond between America and the Holy Land for its Jewish community was essentially formed and became very important to this day. Glazebrook's appointment was a shift towards the formalization of what had previously been merely personal bonds between individuals in the United States and the Holy Land. At the outbreak of the war, now, the relationship could have 
developed in a number of directions, obviously. But the war, and as I said earlier, the work of a Zionist organization essentially uh, resulted in driving this relationship between the United States and the Holy Land towards a form of American-Jewish intent, alliance, that would solidify, would solidify over the following decades. Let me say a few words about uh, how Glazebrook has been um, sort of seen by historians in the past. Some of the previous guests of the podcast actually discussed the role and work of uh, Glazebrook, particularly in the distribution of aid to local Jewish communities. But if we go back in time, uh, an earlier historian, Frank Manuel, in 1949, painted Glazebrook as some sort of a colorless diplomat, naive and somewhat anti-Zionist. Now, Manuel does not really mention Glazebrook's enormous labor on behalf of Palestine Jewish community. In fact, he suggests that the consul was not acting on his own initiative, but was compelled by the U.S. government. So essentially he says, well, you know, he didn't care, but he had to do it. I would say something different. He played this role in between moments where aid was provided on individual basis before the war. And during the war, what we see is a more institutionalized presence of American aid particularly for Jewish communities in Palestine. And Glazebrook, Glazebrook essentially played this role in shifting that paradigm, that model. So what I believe is that looking back at the relationship between America and the Zionist organization, and then later on with the State of Israel, I would say that it's probably better to recognize World War I as a foundational moment for that alliance rather than World War II. Now, let me say a few things before we're going to start looking at uh, uh, Glazebrook about the United States and the Ottoman Empire with a specific uh, reference to Palestine. Relations between America and the Middle East really date back the early years of the Republic. However, before World War I, Ottoman Palestine held no great importance for most Americans. And as I said earlier, many knew Palestine as the biblical Holy Land. Now, for a small group, it was a, a supplier of and potential market for commercial goods. Obviously, many American entrepreneurs were looking at all various parts of the world. This became true, particularly at the beginning of the 20th century, when the American president, William Taft, inaugurated an aggressive trade policy, which you know, became known as the dollar diplomacy. And essentially, the Ottoman Empire became a very important and palatable market. In fact, you know, we can see a growing uh, amount of uh, exports uh, and import of goods from the Ottoman Empire to the United States and vice versa. However, it was still peanuts, right? It was still very l small compared, for instance, with the German, British, French, Russian and Italian investments throughout the Ottoman Empire and in Palestine. Uh, so some Americans maybe had personal interactions with inhabitants of Ottoman Palestine uh, because, you know, a number of Palestinians migrated to the United States, sometimes for short periods, seeking money and avoiding military service, some settled down or moved throughout America, whether to Canada or even, you know, other moved to South America. While Jewish communities in Palestine 
had begun to receive charitable support from Jewish American institutions. Again, sometimes because there were direct connections, sometimes because American Jews were informed of the needs of these Jews that lived in Palestine. So in Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. So they, they saw that, again, uh, as a religious duty to provide charity supporting these Jews in Palestine. But essentially, the bottom line of this is that most Americans would have found it nearly impossible to find Palestine on a map. Now, we already said earlier that obviously there were American missionaries throughout the Ottoman Empire, and I think it's worth always remembering that their work was essentially a colonial enterprise or an imperialist enterprise. In fact, as early as 1929, a professor at Columbia University, Edward Earle, suggested that for almost a century, American public opinion concerning the Near East was formed by the missionaries. If American opinion has been uninformed, misinformed, and prejudiced, the missionary are largely to blame. That was a very harsh uh, comment to make in 1929 when obviously people just trusted the missionaries. But we owe to Edward Earle that comment because it's certainly very important to understand the kind of work that the missionaries did. While the question of the motives and sort of the problems that they caused we also have to look at the other side of the coin and acknowledge that missionaries also provide an unprecedented humanitarian relief to the Christian population of the Ottoman Empire during World War I. Humanitarian assistance, however, was not neutral. And uh, one of the leaders of the Ottoman Empire during the war, Enver Pasha, for instance, considered the missionaries as adversaries who were trying to divide the population of the empire. Now, I said that they brought humanitarian relief to the Christian population of the Ottoman Empire, but we also should say that in some locations they did assist the entire population, regardless of their religious affiliation. I think this is, again, an important uh, detail not to omit. Now, the war changed the understanding of uh, humanitarianism. And I think here the work of Keith David uh, Wattenpoel um, is very important. He essentially argues that the 19th century humanitarianism, which uh, tried to alleviate the sufferings of others in obedience to a moral or a religious duty, often as you know, American Protestants did uh, in the region, in the hopes also to convert uh, the, the recipients of this aid, changed. And World War I ushered in a new form of humanitarianism, which was envisioned as a permanent, institutional, neutral, to a point, and secular institution created to address and understand the roots of hum human suffering. And as I said earlier, Glazebrook literally falls in the middle of this shift. His consular career essentially spanned these two periods, and you can see in his approach a blend of both. So in a sense, Glazebrook becomes our window to look at this transition and how it happened. So let me give you a few details about Glazebrook biography. 
Artis Alan Glazebrook was born in 1845 in Richmond, Virginia, and uh, he was part of a you know prominent uh, family. Uh, at 15, Glazebrook entered Randolph uh, Macon College, and he was preparing essentially to become a cadet at West Point, a cadet at West Point. Now, obviously, with the outbreak of the American Civil War in 1861, he secured an appointment as a cadet at the Virginia Military Institute, during which time he served as a corporal in the Confederate Army. And I underline this, stress this, Confederate Army. And fought in the Battle of New Market in 1864. He was demoralized and troubled by his war experience and eventually established a youth organization at the end of the war, the Alpha Tau Omega Fraternity with the aim to reunite North and South in brotherhood, essentially through sort of his academic brotherhood, you know, fraternities. Glazebrook graduated from the Virginia Military uh, Institute in 1865, and then he decided to go into the legal profession. He married the following year with Virginia Calvert Key Smith, and in 1867, he, uh, she gave uh, birth to their first son. Shortly afterward, Glazebrook entered the ministry in the Episcopal Church, and they left for Alexandria in Virginia, where he studied at the Virginia Episcopal Seminary. So, early military career, lawyer, and clergy. Now, as a pastor, he served in Virginia, then Baltimore, and later in New Jersey. In 1885, Glazebrook was appointed rector of St. John's Protestant Episcopal Church in Elizabeth, New Jersey which essentially means Princeton. Now, in 1898, at the outbreak of the Spanish-American War, he was recalled into army service. Uh, we don't know if he saw military action or not, but he certainly went. He was also a Freemason, and Glazebrook served as a chaplain of the Grand Lodge of Masons of New Jersey and other similar organizations. He also received the Order of the Holy Sepulchre. And in his exceptional diverse career, Glazebrook remained the leader always of the Alpha Tau Omega Fraternity, which still exists and operates. And it expanded nationwide throughout this period of time. However, he stepped down as a leader of the Alpha Tau Omega when he was appointed American consul in Jerusalem in 1914. In 1906, his wife died. And uh, he kept serving as a rector, but upon retirement in 1914, essentially, Glazebrook was selected for diplomatic service by his friend, President Woodrow Wilson, because, and this is a speculation because we don't really have a lot of sources available, as they knew each other, it's possible that essentially he asked uh, Wilson to go to the Holy Land and to spend his final years you know, as a consul, but essentially to develop his uh, uh, scholarly work as a clergy in the Holy Land. We know that Glazebrook supported Wilson uh, in his candidacy for governor of New Jersey and then president in 1912. Uh, and eventually, in 1914, Glazebrook was appointed and confirmed at the age of 69 as American consul to Jerusalem. By April of that year, he was sitting in Jerusalem. Now, this new job for him was really a dream come true. Glazebrook 
basically saw it as a partial retirement from parochial service. And, you know, as I said earlier, this would allow him to indulge in biblical studies when, while protecting the small, may not, not necessarily challenging American interest in Palestine and Jerusalem. Actually, even remarried in Jerusalem, marrying a woman, Emmeline Rumford, herself an American, obviously. However, the quiet life Glazebrook had envisioned was soon complicated by the outbreak of a war in Europe and eventually the Ottoman entry on the side of the central powers. So in Jerusalem, Glazebrook was responsible for caring for the small American community in Palestine, but as time went on, he extended his protection over citizens of other countries. I want to highlight this. Palestinian Muslims did not represent a major concern for Glazebrook. This is highlighted in a number of letters and documents, reports that he left. However, he played a major role in aiding various religious communities in the city, particularly the Jewish community. Now, I don't want to say that he was a sort of a racist towards the Muslims, but I believe he considered them as part of the Ottoman Empire and therefore part of a majority, hence not his duty to take care of them. In May 1917, while uh, the United States uh, uh, joined the war effort with a rupture of diplomatic relations between America and uh, the Ottoman Empire, Glazebrook left Palestine. He was shipped back to America for a short period of time, returned to Jerusalem after the war in December 1918, where he remained for two more years. So he really served for a number of years and he really saw the changes that occurred in Jerusalem. Now we have plenty of documents that he left in terms of like official material. Pity that other than a few letters, unfortunately he didn't leave us a diary or a memoir. Or maybe he did, but I was not able to find any in the various archives uh, that I searched for the story and history of Glazebrook. Now at the end of 1920, when he was now 75, Glazebrook accepted a new diplomatic appointment, this time in France, in Nice, where essentially, uh, you know, he was just guarding American interests, uh, mostly tourists and businessmen traveling throughout southern France. So, like, it, it sounds like a thank you note because he served in Jerusalem, uh, which eventually was, you know, not as he imagined was going to be. And uh, in 1930, uh, when Emmeline died, so the second wife died, his health began to deteriorate. And so his son, Otis Glazebrook Jr., decided that his father had to return to, to America. Unfortunately, Glazebrook fell ill on the return voyage and died at sea on April 26, 1931. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Just a few hours before reaching New York. Let me expand a little bit on his work in Jerusalem during the war. You know, like all of the other consuls, he wrote annual reports, special reports, he uh, wrote uh, letters and memoirs and memo on local government issues, the population, the economy. So we got a lot of information, uh, details that were written down that help us to understand what happened in the city during World War I. This included obviously political developments, the effect of the war. He was very good at uh, providing tables, uh, you know, showing the increase in the cost of living and also showing how the war afflicted the different communities living in Jerusalem. He was able to manage multiple relationships, particularly with foreign communities living in Jerusalem and Palestine, but also with the government. And he made his priority humanitarian aid. That was his task, to help people in Jerusalem and Palestine. Now, with the outbreak of the war, Glazebrook found himself charged as representative of nations' interests that abandoned Palestine because they joined the war against the Ottoman Empire. So Britain, France, later Italy, Russia, Belgium, and Switzerland. In fact, to, to, at some point, Glazebrook noted in a letter, not only are there archives in my possession, but there are consulates, cathedrals, institutional homes, hospitals, and complications are constantly arising in the responsibility of our subjects still in and near Jerusalem. Remember, he was a man in his early 70s. He was tired, and yet he had to, you know, deal with this massive amount of work. And eventually he wrote a, a report in 1915 saying, my duties have not only involved diplomacy, judicature, philanthropy, and great personal risk, but also that for which I have thought I was the least qualified, the management of finance and practical banking. 
At times, I have had the responsibility of more gold in cash than all the banks in this section put together. That tells us that there was still money flowing through remittances, getting into uh, Palestine from America, and then redistributed to the relevant communities, mostly Jewish communities. Glazebrook formed an important relationship with the American ambassador to Constantinople, Istanbul, Harry Morgenthau. They exchanged numerous letters. And uh, he actively informed uh, Morgenthau of all the developments in Palestine. The American consul consistently sent detailed reports to his superiors. He was very careful uh, and he was very precise. Glazebrook and Morgenthau both closely monitor the evolving condition of Jews for different reasons. Glazebrook, because again, is humanitarian spirit and also because of the Jewish role, because of the uh, role the Jewish community is represented in his form of Christianity, and Morgenthau, because he was a Jew himself. So they pressured Ottoman authorities, reminding them that many Jews were actually Ottoman citizens. In early 1915, Morgenthau wrote to remind Glazebrook of his friendship with Jamal Pasha, the Ottoman governor of Syria and Palestine, and instructed him to keep pressuring the Ottoman general to protect the Jewish communities in Palestine. Now, relations with the local authorities were complex, but in general mutually respectful. The Ottomans looked at America with the sense that it really was an honest broker that America was the country that they were aspiring to become, in a sense. Zaki Bey, the military commander of Jerusalem, described Glazebrook, quote, not only as a consul of men's appointment, but of God's, a perfect gentleman, the ideal diplomat. And while Glazebrook gushed that he had received much kindness here at the ends of the people in general and the official in particular with whom I have managed to establish influential and close relations. Challenging the view that, you know, the, the Ottomans were essentially monster against everybody. Grisbrook gives us a sense there was like mutual respect. Throughout the war, Glazebrook sought to maintain his normal consular role and he dealt with a number of American citizens outside and within Palestine. But obviously this work was very hard. What we get to see is that some of these communities were also hit by the economic pressure caused by the war. And so in, in a number of consular reports, he, he described that... Uh, you know, there was no developed commerce nor any industry worthy of the name uh, at that period of time. And uh, the wartime conditions exacerbated the vulnerability of the population in general. But he also, as I said, you know, wrote down a few details about the Americans, who certainly suffered uh, as a result of the war, too. Glazebrook reported extensively on the charitable services provided by foreigners, including Americans to the local population, Muslim, Christians, and Jewish communities. Glazebrook described, for instance, the activities of, a, uh, of Nathan Strauss, an American Jew who operated a soup kitchen, a workroom, and a health bureau in Jerusalem, 
mainly serving the local Jewish community. But under the wartime conditions, those in need increasingly turned to official actors as well. In an informal report, Glazebrook noted that the consulate is besieged from early morning to late at night for all variety of requests. The staff is kept constantly active. When people didn't know where to turn to, they began to turn to foreigners with an official role left in Jerusalem and Palestine. So the American consulate became a hub for distributing services to American cities and others. And I would say that at some point became more to others than American citizens. And Glazebrook took evident pride in this role. And he wrote, American relief is wonderful in its assistance to the destitute of the Holy Land. At this point, the primary motivation for American aid was humanitarian rather than political. Nonetheless, I want to make this point, a link between religion, philanthropy, and power was forged. One that I believe would have lasting influence and still has influence in a sense that there's a legacy that was created in that moment in time. In a report of 1915 on the situation of Jerusalem during the war, but particularly focusing on the Jews, Glazebrook stated, it is the unquestioned belief of the entire community that the food relief accomplished an unprecedented good, materially and morally, not only relieving extreme bodily wants, but creating a feeling of goodwill and fellowship manifested in a spirit of friendly reciprocity never before existing in this city and consular district. Glazebrook was directly involved in the distribution of food and aid to religious communities of Palestine. For instance, at the beginning of 1915, Glazebrook, along with Captain Benson Decker of the USS Tennessee, petitioned Ambassador Morgenthau to ship food and aid from America to the Jewish community in Palestine and Jewish refugees in Alexandria, Egypt. This request was met, and in May 1915, the USS Vulcan eventually unloaded its food cargo in Palestine, and distribution began to both Jewish and non-Jewish communities. Each community had its own distribution committee. So Glazebrook sat on the Jewish community's Bahad Hamekolet, the food committee, and received information on other committees in Jerusalem. In their amazing discussions of the wartime distribution of food, Abigail Jacobson, previous guest of the podcast, Caitlin Karanen, hopefully in the future, document the extent of Glazebrook's involvement in the distribution of aid to the Jews of Palestine, as well as his role as mediator among the various Jewish communities. Effectively, Glazebrook came to use a form of soft power or wealthful politics dictated by his personal interest in the Jews. The support he received from his superior, in particular Eric Morgenthau, and his deep Christian faith. What is interesting is that despite this role, the questions of Glazebrook's views of Palestine Jews, and especially of Zionism, was contested and remain a matter of some contest among some circles. Let me say a few things before reaching the conclusion of this episode about Glazebrook and his relationship with Zionism. 
In the past decade or so, a number of Israeli bloggers have expressed a new interest in Otley's Glazebrook. For the most part, they have focused their attention on a picture taken by the American Colony Photography Department and now part of a Matson collection available at the uh, um, U.S. Library of Congress, which allegedly shows Glazebrook actively participating in an anti-Zionist demonstration. Looking at the picture is very hard uh, to see. In fact, it's probably impossible to identify the consul among the crowd. But it's the caption that suggests he was being lifted on the shoulders of Arab demonstrators. Again, it's very hard to see. Some recent commentators also seem ready to echo uh, Manuel's claim, the historians we quoted earlier, that Glazebrook was an anti-Zionist who fears Zionism potential to provoke conflict between Zionists and Arabs, as well as the spread of Bolshevism in Palestine by Russian Jews. No evidence is brought forward by any of these orders or bloggers. Yet, I believe that identifying Glazebrook as an anti-Zionist obscures more than it illuminates. I believe that we should look at the kind of uh, Zionism that is supported. Glazebrook supported a type of Zionism that centered around religious and humanitarian attempts to alleviate the suffering of the Jews. In a 1915 report, Glazebrook drew no distinction between Zionists and other Jews in Palestine and stated that the destruction of the Zionist movement would deal a major blow to the religious aspiration of Jews throughout the world. Paradoxically, this position convinced secular labor Zionists that the consul was an anti-Zionist. Glazebrook understood the Zionist movement as the interest as an interest in reviving the Hebrew language, and he attributed to this no political aspirations. Glazebrook saw Zionism as a humanitarian movement with no political goals, at least not while the war continued, and claimed that Zionists had done nothing to indicate either intent or expectation of establishing a Jewish government. Instead, he expressed to a Jewish audience his readiness to do for you anything in my power, quote, because of the universally admirable qualities he saw in Jewish mutual support, which in his words represented, again, quote, the common characteristic and common aspiration of the people of the earth, nowhere more conspicuously seen than among the Hebrews of the Holy City, brotherhood and love of man. Political Zionism, in the form of supporting the establishment of a Jewish entity in Palestine, based on the work of pioneers, was not in keeping with the goals of a Protestant diplomacy or missionary work that Glazebrook embraced. So looking at the support provided to the Jews throughout the war, we can see how American involvement in Palestine grew due to the influence of the Jewish American and European Zionist organization, and also helps us helps us to explain the shift from a humanitarianism based on religion, moral duty, to a broader one. Prior to the outbreak of World War I, the attitude of the American State, of Department, the State Department was unfriendly to Zionism and the increasing Jewish population in Palestine in general. Yet the general American view of Palestine was undergoing a shift in the late 19th and early 20th century. In fact, scholars of America, Holy Land studies, have suggested that Americans in this period began to see 
the Holy Land through the prism of their own history, in which Zion was understood to be the land of their fathers. For Americans like Wilson and Glazebrook, the land of the Bible was a sort of an idyllic alternative to the modern United States, an echo of pre-industrial America. American Christians in the Holy Land were expected to be lifted out of their ordinary lives. The affinity of American Jews for the Holy Land was also linked to their American environment. Both were promised lands. With the appointment of a Morgenthau as American ambassador in Constantinople, American interests and humanitarian interests in the Jews of Palestine converged. Morgenthau, Jewish but not a Zionist, nevertheless expressed concern for his co-religionists and saw the relief of Palestinian Jews as an American responsibility. Michael Oren, former American uh, ambassador to Israel and also a scholar, argued that the United States treated the suffering of Ottoman Jews the same as the suffering of Armenians. But there were notable differences. American Jews were able to support Jews in Palestine through the remittance of money. And Ottoman Jews had not been subjected to racial policies meant to annihilate an entire population, as in the case of Armenians. And I think this is very important. There is a big distinction here. I think Oren misunderstood that. Um, there are differences. For instance, in the spring of 1917, Jamal Pasha ordered the evacuation of Jaffa. Many thought this policy targeted Jaffa Jewish community, as German Jewish and Austrian Jewish residents were invited into inverted commas, to leave, while other German and Austrian nationals were allowed to remain if they chose. About 9,000 Jewish residents were relocated. Many left for nearby colonies, and others moved to the Jewish colonies in Upper Galilee. Claims that Palestine Jewish communities stood on the verge of annihilation, however, reached Europe and, more importantly, the United States, receiving little scrutiny because of their accordance with the prevailing negative views of the Ottomans. The incident, however, received diplomatic attention. The Spanish consul, Conde de Bayobar, investigated the matter, and the British invited Glazebrook to write a report. So before leaving Jerusalem in May 1917, after diplomatic ties between the Ottoman Empire and America were severed, Glazebrook stated that, quote, acts of violence said to have been committed against the Jewish population of Jaffa are grossly exaggerated. In fact, all sources available note that Glazebrook petitioned Ottoman authorities to protect the Jews in Palestine. His personal friendship with Jamal Pasha, which had served Glazebrook so well in the past, seems to have helped in this case too. So obviously, you know, we have different people looking at Glazebrook in different ways. During the war, American Zionism existed in two main factions both like the American Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, who argued for a more direct intervention with explicitly political goals in mind, and others like Morgenthau, who wanted to avoid political commitments. Wilson's elections allowed Brandeis to urge the American government to take a more active role in support of political Zionism. And again, another step towards that relationship 
which eventually turned into the alliance that still we see between America and Israel. Wilson's support of the Balfour Declaration gave the Zionists powerful leverage to influence American Jews and convert to political Zionism those who did not yet support the movement. Glazebrook and missionaries in general supported the principle of self-determination, but not ethnic nationalism. Political Zionism was perceived as potentially uh, as a potentially separatist nationalism that was both secular and incompatible with Christian objectives in the region, making it a threat to interethnic and interreligious coexistence. Now, this ideological shift within American Zionism had a significant impact on the American role in Palestine. In a January 1925 interview with an American newspaper, Glazebrook spoke highly of a newly appointed British High Commissioner in Palestine, Herbert Samuel, but refused to discuss Zionism. This refusal should not be read as an antipathy for Zionism, but as evidence of the emerging distance between the Jews with, and for whom Glazebrook endeavored in Palestine and the Zionists were by the war's end imbued with political aspirations expressed in an emboldened and emboldened by the Balfour Declaration. Glazebrook represented those who, motivated by personal religious beliefs, considered it their duty to help Jews in recognition of a conviction that the Jews were part of a divine plan to redeem humanity. So scholars and bloggers' description of Glazebrook's politics as anti-Zionist really indicates a misreading of the latter's position, but also a reduction of Zionism to its purely political dimension, effectively cancelling its cultural and humanitarian variants. Glazebrook's post-war reports show that he was concerned with the new brand of political Zionism introduced in Palestine and openly supported by the American government. A growing awareness of and concern with the emerging Arab-Zionist conflict, though clearly, does not equate to anti-Zionism. So, charitable actors in the early 20th century practiced two predominant forms of humanitarianism. The first urged support of the needy by appealing to a sense of ethical and religious duty. The second came to have a symbiotic relationship with colonialism. Abigail Jacobson argued that the politics of welfare linked humanitarianism and political power, creating a lasting legacy still visible in Israel today. As an American consul in Jerusalem during a crucial period, Otis Glazebrook played an important role in the transition from welfare humanitarianism to the institutional use of welfare as a tool of political action and soft power. And as I said several times, laying a foundation for American political dominance in Palestine and the broader Middle East in subsequent decades. Make no mistake, that doesn't mean things couldn't have been different. Of course they could have been. This is a way of reading the past, given what happened. So we have to understand that, you know, it happened for a reason in that way, and these are the foundations. And yet there were different avenues, but those different avenues did not materialize. The American financial aid administered by Glazebrook helped to consolidate the Zionist movement and institutionalized American support for it, 
by making a clear choice to support one community in Palestine, the Zionists, over others. In time, this gave the United States a unique position of power and influence in Palestine. For the Zionist movement, wartime developments consolidated the support of American Zionists, while Britain's endorsement embodied in the Balfour Declaration cemented the primacy of political Zionism. Although Glazebrook seems to have been largely forgotten or, if he is recalled at all, remembered as an enemy of Zionism, I think Zionists should consider Glazebrook an ally, if not one of their own. I hope you enjoyed this episode dedicated to Otis Glazebrook, his work in Jerusalem, I and mean, certainly a very important relationship with uh, uh, humanitarianism and the Zionist movement. In the next two episodes dedicated to these five parts on Jerusalem in World War I, we'll discuss the Spanish consul condemned by Obama and the very intriguing figure of the beauty queen of Jerusalem, Lea Tenenbaum. Thank you. Until the next episode of Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. 